Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and the forthcoming Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season we ask a range of wise people a common question, and this time around we're asking, how can we come back together again? Hello from the very wet woods where I'm out looking for mushrooms as usual. It's really interesting. I only started to learn how to do this a couple of years ago and I already have my favourite spots. I mean of course often that's just because they're near to home. But I'm beginning to realise that some get mushrooms earlier than others. And that's because some get saturated by the rain earlier than others. So this morning, I went out to have a look at the spot that was full of things for me to find. And there was nothing. Everything was kind of sodden, actually. And I don't know. It had gone over. You could really tell that it was too wet to find a mushroom there now. And so I've come back here where it was too dry a month ago and it was disappointing. It felt like everything was very dead. And here I can just see loads of mushrooms. I don't always pick to eat. Oh, here's one. What's this? Hello. No, you're not Anita. (laughs) I do talk to them, I'm sorry. But yeah, I don't always pick to eat. I'm often just having a look to see what I know the name of and what I don't and trying to learn the names of the ones that I don't know the name of yet. But also, I pick for medicine. 
I make medicine out of birch bleat, which is a very anti-inflammatory mushroom. And it helps my gut no end. Ooh, that was a mouldy one. I just put my finger through it. That was gross. <laughs> it's not all glamour, you know. You see all these overflowing baskets on Instagram and those people don't tell you that they've reached down and put their hand through a mushroom. <laughs> and I also pick turkey tail and other varieties that I make tinctures from. So I think what I love at this time of year is a reason to go out in the rain. It's a very dull day very forbidding you know everything feels cold and damp and grey and this lets me come out drink in what little sunshine there is and believe me there is very little available today and see how the leaves are turning (gasps) the rain's getting heavier can you hear I'm sheltering under a beautiful old chestnut tree so This is how I still get my kicks in the winter. I know everyone's baffled by it, but it beats staying inside all day. When I go home, I will light some candles in the afternoon. It's one of my favourite winter things, actually. The combination of candlelight and very pale afternoon light. It always feels like an act of brave defence against the winter so I'm here today to introduce you to Emma Gannon sorry I paused then because I saw a mushroom (laughs) you don't have my full attention I do (laughs) apologise I'm here to introduce you to Emma Gannon who I've interviewed for this season where we're thinking about how we can come back together again and Emma has written extensively about life online actually about the kind of the world that we most of us anyway swim in now water we swim in I should say this world that is profoundly online and in many ways hyper connected but which is always full of difficulties because of those of the nature of those connections. I've just put my hood up. I wonder if that changes the quality of sound for you too, because I can hear my voice much more clearly. And so I wanted to ask Emma about how we come back together again online. Because in many ways, I didn't want to interview someone who is saying that everyone should disconnect from the online world altogether. Like, I personally have hugely benefited from being able to make connections online. It's let my niche, marginalised community find each other and learn so much from each other. And I'm not ready to walk away yet. But we need a better route through it. And Emma just always seems to me eminently balanced and sensible and native to the place that I'm native and deeply thoughtful anyway take a listen I think she's got a lot to say
So I'm really excited to welcome Emma Gannon. Emma is a Sunday Times bestselling author, speaker, podcaster, and all-round expert in creativity and digital culture. She's allowed us to have multi-hyphenated careers, which I relate very strongly to, to silence our inner critics and to stay human in an online world, which is what we'll be discussing today. Her first novel, Olive, was published to great acclaim in 2020. Welcome, Emma. It's so lovely to have you here. Hi, Catherine. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. It's just great. So this season, we're talking about how we can come together again. And you were obviously one of the first people who sprung to mind for me because I guess the best way to say it is I feel like I relate to your understanding of online culture so well. Like on the one hand, you are undoubtedly a digital native and you can see loads of positives in it, but you're also really good at unpicking the the dark side of it and the problematic side of it. I wonder if we could just start by you telling us how it began for you online. Like what's your first memory of being online and, and how's it developed since then? Oh, that's a good question. I think I would say <laughs> I would say signing up for MySpace. That was my first love affair moment, I think, with the online world, because I don't know if anyone listening will remember, but the homepage was like an arcade. It was my, I remember my heart <laughs> would race and my eyes would widen and my, you know, hairs would stand up on the back of my neck. Like it was like that feeling of when you fancy someone or you're just enamored with something. I was just like, I could not get enough of it. And at that point, it didn't really feel like an addiction. It just felt exciting. And I would run home Mm. from school. I would log on and I knew I only had half an hour because that's, you know, the amount of time I was allowed to have before my mum booted me off or she needed to use the landline. So it was just this pocket of time that felt just like my world was opening up and my life was bigger than just the school I was at. And that was just Mm. like the candy that I I guess I spent decades later kind of wanting more of, but in different ways. Yeah, that kind of craving. I mean, you're a couple of years, well, more than a couple of years younger than me. You're a few years younger than me. So I first met the internet when I was about 19. Like it, it just didn't really exist before then, except in military settings. And so I lived my whole teenage years without it. And I think it must be incredibly different to be a younger teenager online. And, you know, like my son is 10. I mean, he cannot imagine life not online. Like he, it's literally the olden days for him to think about (laughs) even having dial-up internet, which I can still sing the song that my dial-up internet used to make. (laughs) It was this really specific noise, you know. And I, I think there is that very addictive quality to it as adults but as teenagers the way that it inhabits your brain I think must be very very different. Yes and I think that is interesting that I came to it probably yeah in my mid-teens so not super Mm. early I mean I read a statistic the other day that I think 90% of 11 year olds now have a phone and 11 seems young but also I get it you know if you want to know where your child is I'm sure I would give my child a phone because it's more for the parent than them at the beginning Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I was probably 14 or 15 when I kind of truly felt like I was getting involved with the online world. And I do think by that age, I had a sense of who I was. I had a sense of what's good, what's bad, my parameters. You know, if I felt unsafe, I would log off. I did feel like I had a bit of control. But 
it was so fascinating how at that age you're learning how to storytell and you're learning how to edit your persona or photos of yourself. I mean, it was very old school back then and you literally had to go and paint or something. Mm. But I still remember like <laughs> projecting a version of myself that wasn't me. And I was cooler on the internet. I was better looking on the internet. I was funnier on the internet. I could craft one-liners to like boys yeah. that I fancied. And I think in person, that wasn't really who I was. So it's interesting that now, you know, we could say that most people do that on Instagram every day. But yeah, being that in that middle age of kind of, yeah, being a digital native, but also having had a childhood, mm. um, it's quite an interesting one. It's a different perspective altogether. And certainly social media didn't come in until I was in my 20s. And so my first experiences of being on the internet were downloading information. You know, it was, a, it was you know, web 1.0. <laughs> it was very much a one-way street, really. I think it was before you could even comment on anything very much. And that was, at the time, that felt really exciting. Like it felt like an explosion of information and the idea that you could kind of reach out across the world. And, you know, there were like the first very kind of juddery webcams. God, I'm making myself sound so old. I'm <laughs> going to regret this, aren't I, completely? And I remember going to university and there suddenly being like a much quicker uh, connection. And so everybody was saying, hey, we've gone looking for porn because apparently you can get porn on the internet, you know, which just seems so naive now when like we're saturated with everything like that. But I still honestly think that it's shaped my personality and the way I think a lot, even coming across social media much later when I was in theory, at least an adult, mm -hmm. because I, it does train you. There's something about it that dictates your behaviour rather than the other way around. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, what what would you say is the one of the main things? Because I, I think, like you say, social media feels different to just being online and sort of knowing how to Google mm. stuff or finding information. It does shape your personality and it does shape how you interact with others. But I think... There were so many positives at the beginning, like there were so many studies that came out in 2010 where using the internet had improved kids at school's concentration and they mm. were getting better grades and we could see the positivity of it. And we could see that people were reconnecting with friends and they were feeling good about the internet and the first studies oh God, around friends reunited yeah, was such a big thing and Friendster <laughs> and all those ones and the yeah. first study around the Arab Spring and social activism that all came mm. out around then and I, I'm interested in this kind of collective turning point that we've come to recently where it's like we know yeah. too much we've watched the documentaries we know what it's doing to us and how do we then go forward and achieve a middle ground where we still get the good bits. Yeah, because that knowing too much thing, I mean, in many ways, that has been one of the really positive things that being on social media has done for me. Like it's thrown me in the way of other people's perspectives that I couldn't have even imagined before, you know, like I, I wouldn't have even understood the range of views that existed. And it's done this thing to my brain <laughs> that now I can't say anything without thinking almost spontaneously about the range of perspectives that will be held on that utterance as soon as it goes online. And that's painful in a lot of ways, right? Because it's like, it, it can be very stultifying. It can really inhibit you from wanting to say anything because you can already almost predict every conversation you're going to have around it. But it's also 
been a real growing experience. Like I am undoubtedly a more compassionate and more broadly tolerant person because of it, I think. And I I don't think we talk about that very much. Yeah, that's very, very true. And I mean, at the heart of the book that I wrote in Disconnected, it's more about how do you check in with who you are, who you really are without Mm. all of these influences because like you say it's really positive to before you tweet think about how many different people will read it and how many different people might be offended or are you being inclusive that's super important and we all know that people don't really think before they tweet so it's good to pause and it's good to think how's this going to go down and what do I really think but I find that incredibly crippling and also the complete death of creativity Mm. and if I sit around thinking will every single person that follow me agree with this like this understand this I just honestly wouldn't publish another book and that makes me feel really really sad because I don't think many of us are kind of at our root ever trying to harm anyone but it's almost like the people that already care about people kind of aren't the problem it's people who aren't even thinking in the first place so yeah they're the ones that are being really careful I think we kind of need to cut each other a bit of slack and I also feel like Mm. you know for me I like to check in If I read something and it triggers an emotion in me, I I like to sit with that for a bit and be like, what do I think? Why do I feel this way? And then I'll go and look at other people's behaviour and their response because we're social animals. And at the end of the day, we go with the pack and we go with the herd of people who will harm us the least. And so many Mm. of us want to fit in. But by fitting in and saying the right things all the time and ticking the box of like, well done, you said the right thing. Sometimes you can move away from who you really are and I mean, Brené Brown says it beautifully that fitting in is not the same as belonging. And I think if you want to feel like you belong, Mm. you do have to be yourself at the end of the day. And I think it's also interesting to think about the people who do intend harm and what a minority those people actually are. But how visible they become to us because of the way that we can't ignore like painful conversations or painful feedback. And so we have this kind of very unbalanced view of what actually goes on online most of the time, which is that we perceive it to be much more dangerous than it actually is. And I think we often end up amplifying the worst voices because we're so offended by them. Like, we, you know, we, that's the stuff we so often share. Look, this person said this to me. Aren't we all horrified? Oh, God, yes, we are. Like, it, there's something about the way that our attention runs that increases the hurtful bits. It's so true. And, you know, this is something that I learned years and years ago in magazines and when when everything went digital, the monetization of anger, the monetization of Mm. outrage is basically how many people earn money. And every time I get outraged about something, and that's not to say I shouldn't be, I think anger is really healthy and really important, especially for women to have a safe space to be angry. But (laughs) Every time I kind of want to be outraged on the internet, I just know at the end of the day, someone probably wearing a suit, probably in a corner office somewhere is earning a lot Mm. of money. Because like you say, the most opinionated, the most kind of out there stuff rises to the top because we're sort of programmed that way, or at least the social media platforms are programmed that way to get more and more retweets. Um, And I think about that in terms of the news, how... We see so many horrible, horrendous things on a daily basis that are on the news homepage. But 
when we really, really think about it, those are a handful of things that, yes, are mm. awful. Which is why they're on the news. Which is why yeah. they're on the news, yeah. exactly. But actually, if you look yeah. at the reality of the world, I mean, that's why I've signed up to this app called Good News, where I get good news every day, because I just want to counterbalance it. I mean, I'm not saying those news items aren't serious and real. They are, but they're not. Mm-hmm. they're not just what's going on. And I think we can kind of, yeah, we can feel like our brain is um, being reprogrammed to just be negative in that way. Definitely. And I, because I, because our question is, how do we come together again? I think we probably need to like come reverse from that and talk about the falling apart that's happened really, because it's old hat to talk about bubbles now and how they formed in the internet. But we really have over the last like five, 10 years fallen into very, very separate camps, which feel now unbridgeable. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like the way that, and in fact, you, in fact, you frame this really well, because you talk about like the, the kind of natural conversations you might have in the pub. And they have always been full of conflict, actually, like they've always been full of disagreement. But face to face, somehow that disagreement feels okay, and even fun, like even quite stimulating, and certainly not destructive or the end of any conversation. But there's something about online disagreement that feels particularly brutal. Do you get that impression too? Or is that how it feels to me? Oh God, yeah, I really do. And I've I've been fascinated by this for years because especially on Twitter, it's really interesting that and we're not really out of this, where someone would disagree with someone at, on something actually quite petty probably. And instead of just saying mm-hmm. like, oh I don't agree with that let's move on. It's basically, I don't like you anymore. I must mute Mm. you or block you or remove you from my life. And it's actually quite funny when you think about it, because you don't go through your real life doing that. Otherwise, you'd end up with absolutely no friends. Like We we, we can't live (laughs) like that. But on social media, it feels fine to kind of cut people out if you don't agree. And I find that fascinating. Mm. But I also, you know, back to what you just said, there's research out there that says the more you disagree in a romantic relationship, the more likely you are to stay together. Disagreement is really healthy and it's really good for us. And it means that we're communicating and it means we're not kind of keeping it all inside. And so I love a Mm. little bit of disagreement, but unfortunately, yeah, the platforms aren't designed for that longer form, which is why, you know, I've moved over to Substack, like this amazing newsletter platform where people are leaving really long comments with each other and disagreeing and there's nuance and people are saying I agree with that bit and not that bit so I do have hope but I think the social media platforms as they stand they don't help and they get us into sort of fight or flight responses and my cynical the cynical part of me thinks that they like that these platforms want us to oh you know spend more time on there basically yeah I mean I've I've noticed more and more how Twitter in particular is a platform that not only do I witness loads of outrage and but also some kind of it almost trains you into extreme positions because that very short pithy mode of expression works best when you're saying something really clear and and kind of blunt and simple and it doesn't work if you're saying, well, actually, this is a very complex problem, which I'm now going to unpack over a thread of 500 tweets, and you'll need to read each one in order <laughs> in order to understand it. And so it becomes like a kind of a platform that leads to a lot of peer pressure, I think, to move towards the extremes as well, because 
if you say something complex and nuanced, it doesn't land well quite often and you'll immediately get a load of pushback. Whereas if you say something extreme but simple, you may get the pushback still, but it will be drowned out by many, many people retweeting you and you'll feel like you've kind of won some kind of social award for for being you know the the best at Twitter on that day (laughs) and like I've noticed that not only do I witness that more on Twitter but it it has also totally trained me to come there for that so if I'm cross about something before I even think about it I find myself opening Twitter to express that crossness and I'm really I'm spending a lot of time noticing that at the moment because that is that's never been stated by the platform like come to us with your anger but I have, it has subtly trained me into a desire for that. Yeah, me too. And it's interesting when you see maybe an opinion you held even a few months ago or years ago and how much maybe they've changed and how you can see in hindsight that that did feel pressured and it did feel like you should do it to be quote unquote a good person when there mm. were probably more layers to it. And actually on in hindsight, you, your gut feeling of like, oh, I don't know. I think I need a bit more information on this, actually, before I have this opinion <laughs> was probably correct. But, you know, as we say, we're social animals. But I find that really interesting. And I think I think being able to say you don't know still feels like the biggest taboo, even around like yeah. politics and labelling ourselves and putting each other in boxes or putting yourself in a box. There are lots of things that I really don't know yet. And mm. I feel like that's OK because we're in a major time of change lots of things are changing we're not in a stable time in history where it's like right this is what the world looks like and this is where i stand and obviously here are the certainties (laughs) like there are obvious (laughs) things that we don't even need to say on on ways you would stand against something or for something but i'm talking about the Mm. kind of gray areas where we haven't figured it out yet so to go kind of all guns blazing with your opinion feels really counterintuitive and just not helpful because you're starting a campaign around something you don't really know much about So I think it's just the fact that everyone feels like an expert now feels just false. And it's like, I'm very happy to put my hand up and be like, I don't know, actually. Why don't Mm. we discuss all the things we don't know? But also people live in fear. And what do we do when we're scared? We try and find an answer. And we saw that during COVID. Like that was the most unknown time probably most of us ever went through. And yet everyone knew exactly what other people should be doing. And so (laughs) it it is interesting. Yeah. And actually, one of the things that we need to learn to say again is like, sometimes we all need to be doing a different thing, actually. Like there is no one, I think COVID is such a good example of that. There is no one behaviour that is correct across the whole of society for COVID. We're all going to have to respond in a slightly different way because we're all living with different pressures and different needs. But that feels very unexpressible to me on Twitter. And I like, let's think about Instagram as well, because Instagram, it feels like that wouldn't even be a welcome discussion. Like there's different problems with Instagram. It's it's a gentler place for sure, um, although not always, but it feels a bit like fantasy land sometimes. Yes, it does. And it's also interesting because even when you know all the information and research, you know, there's so many studies that say that when we are at our lowest ebb, when we are going through a mental health crisis, we will post Mm. a really great picture of our life because we're not really doing it for other people. (laughs) We're doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for that little boost that you get when you post Mm. a lovely photo of you in a nice dress 
with your dog or on holiday or with a friend, like we're doing it because we're reminding ourselves that our life is not complete shit, basically. And there's so much around, you know, people who take more selfies with their partner, they're more likely to split up. It's it's so fascinating. Yeah, there was like this really interesting Australian study that looked into that. And I find that interesting because even though I've done all this research and I've written a whole book on it, I still don't log on to Instagram and think, well, actually, let's unpick the fact that this person, even though they're in the Maldives, told me a few days ago that they're, you know, not great right now. You know, I, you can't mm-hmm. do that sort of nuance when the pixels are right in front of you telling you a story. And yet we know all, all of this to be true, that those little squares don't make up a reality. So yeah. we can't blame ourselves for being sucked in and um i have a really complicated relationship with instagram i really do and i think as a writer i love words i love communicating through words so this idea of pictures mm. being first i like looking at them and i like following it, normally inanimate objects to be honest like rugs and plants and interiors because yeah. this idea of a picture trying to paint who you are it just doesn't it can never happen it's it's impossible i think mm. it's interesting how Badly, we misunderstand each other and our motivations, though, isn't it? Because although we know that we go onto Instagram to comfort ourselves primarily and to, I don't think we often do try and misrepresent our lives, but to try and bring beauty back into something that can feel quite ugly. Um, Sarah Tasker's brilliant at this. She talks really fantastically about like, well, why wouldn't I want to put a pretty picture on Instagram? I'm not trying to conceal anything. I'm just trying to make my life feel nice for <laughs> a while. True, yeah. <laughs> but it's really interesting that we don't perceive that in others, that even though we understand our own motivations really well, that we look at the next person's feeling like, oh, they're shop fronting totally. Like what's going on with them? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's funny because I've got two Instagram accounts. And I write about this in the book, actually, how it might sound really weird to some people, but I did have to compartmentalise my life a little bit and basically lean into that and be like, look, my Instagram Mm. account that you'll find, the public one, that has like however many thousand followers, that is a shop front, actually. That is how I make money. It is a literal shop front. literally a shop front. (laughs) And it is my shiny side and it is me wearing lipstick and it is me on a good day, you know, with my office being tidy but I also have a private Instagram for my friends and family and it really is the opposite of that and you know some people might say well why can't you be more authentic with the shop front but what's interesting is like that is authentic because that's authentic for what it is which is a business account and Mm. back to the Sarah Tasker thing like I want it to look pretty and I want it to look nice and I'm talking about topics that really excite me but I also have the other account, which only has 100 people on, and I do post just really kind of rough around the edges, rubbish photos, like trying to choose a paint colour for my wall and see who comments underneath with the, (laughs) you know, the answers. So I don't know what that says about me, but I think what it says is actually I want to go back to basics and I want to have 100 people who really know me well seeing the real insides of my life. And it's okay to like want two things at once, basically. Well, it's okay for you to go to work, in effect, which is what you're doing with your kind of outward facing Instagram account. You're doing what everybody else does when they go to work, which is to put on smarter clothes than maybe you would normally and behave yourself in a slightly different way. Like that's, that is what we do. Yeah. And it's funny with that because people might disagree, but I feel like I like a professionalism. Like I like feeling Mm. professional sometimes. And 
one of my favourite authors, Seth Godin, who writes brilliant books about creativity, he talks a lot about being a professional and showing up and and kind of trying to be you on a good day and showing up for your work. And even when I write my books, like I try and put on sometimes a nice outfit and not always, but or I like to make myself a nice lunch. And if I want to take a picture of it, so be it. But it's kind of all about <laughs> showing up for yourself. And if that looks, mm. you know, a bit shinier than the other days, then that's okay. But I'm sure my opinion will keep changing on this topic, but that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. But it, I mean, I think there's a statistic that I can't remember exactly, but I think the majority of page hits, if you like, that Instagram get is people looking at their own feed and their own <laughs> yeah, stories. Yeah. Like we're using it as a photo album quite often and we're trying to capture the the highlights rather than the gritty reality. And, and honestly, I've got some people in my feed who really do capture their real life. And honestly, like I often end up muting them because it's like, I don't need to see you cutting your toenails. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's actually, you know, you realise that you want that presented image rather than something that is a little bit icky quite often. It's true. And I, I think we forget what authentic <laughs> actually means. It doesn't mean crying into a camera it doesn't have to mean that it could mean that but for a lot of people being authentic like I think it's authentic that I'm admitting that I have a business account that shows my highlights like that's authentic because I'm admitting it I think there's lots of different sides to us and I think being authentic just isn't really black or white you know Mm -hmm. there's that I can't remember who said it but there was something about how and for Anna Wintour like her bob her perfect bob is her being authentic (laughs) because that's who she is. Yeah. Um, and I always think about that because I think it's an interesting example of how someone's kind of perfectionist qualities could actually be them being authentic. Mm. We'll be back to the conversation in just a moment. But first of all, we know how hard it is to find new podcasts and we thought you might love this one. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How does creativity play a role for all of us? Not just as artists and creatives, but everyone. That's what guides us on Creative Fuel, a podcast about the intersection of creativity and our everyday lives. Each episode begins with a leading question. How do we connect with each other? How do we find flow? How do we get through hard times? Creative Fuel is hosted by me, Anna Brownis. I talk with writers, artists, scientists, and researchers, all to explore what it means to be human, and all through the lens of creativity. Listen to Creative Fuel 
wherever you find podcasts. So, despite everything, despite the effort we put into these platforms, we're feeling more separate than ever. And that's that's almost transferred from the online context into the real world, I think. Like those very hot topics on social media are now translating as we've come back together, you know, after the pandemic, they're translating to conversations over the dinner table. And they are beginning to affect our behaviour. You know, I'm hearing people saying that they don't want to spend time with members of their family anymore because they find their opinions so offensive. And that does strike me as as a real change, because actually, we've always, I think, lived with, you know, the uncle who says racist things over the dinner table. But we're now unable to tolerate it or to have a discussion, you know, like or to enter into the discussion that he clearly needs to to have Mm -hmm. with someone a bit more reasonable. Am I wrong to blame that on social media? Or like does it feels to me like that's come that's almost filtered in from the sort of more sensitized mindset we've got ourselves into. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because I think that's always been there. I think, well, I speak Mm. to my parents and we have really healthy discussions. I don't agree with a lot of what they say, but for some reason we're able to talk about it, which I'm really grateful for because that could get quite bad if if one of us would close down. But they were saying that with their parents, because if there's like 30 or 40 years um, or less between a generation, that's a lot Mm. of time for society to change and, and for things that they felt they were right about when they were young to no longer be right is like a hard pill to swallow. And and, and mm. they were saying that with their parents, actually, it was even worse. They would find what they were saying incredibly offensive. And these arguments right. would always happen over the dinner table. But what I think has changed is this sort of way that we go about life now on social media, which is like, we have these like personal brands of like, this is who I am. These are my interests. These are the bands I follow on Facebook or whatever. These are the people I follow. These mm-hmm. are the things I like. These are the politics I believe in. And then anything that is outside of that is almost like harmful to you and your outward appearance to the world. So for example, yeah. it must be hard if someone's whole career and brand or whatever identity is about being one way. And then they're suddenly with their parents and they're like, oh God, I hope no one overhears this because this you know, is at odds with my beliefs. And I think people are almost scared to, I guess we're in, you know, we're in a time Mm. of cancel culture, aren't we? So I think people are just scared that anyone saying the wrong thing uh, translates badly onto you. But the way I see it is I have my views and other people have theirs. I will absolutely call it out and say my opinion. But I, at the fundamentally, I mean, hopefully not with the most extreme examples, but most of the time we we do have to allow people to have their own opinions. Yeah. And I like you've I've seen it happen online where even people having a book on their shelf behind them as they speak mm. has been called out like it's a it's an unacceptable book. And, how, you know, that person must be a terrible person is the inference. Like if you if you're reading that. And of course, that's not remotely true, right? I mean, I have a lot of books on my shelf that I don't agree with. And that's why I have them because they're there to offer a different perspective. And because I need to understand them if I'm going to write about them, because otherwise I won't be covering the whole argument or the whole debate. But we, yeah, we feel that kind of sense of 
of risk. And it it's becoming like those medieval, you know, cities, like anything outside of the walls is dirty and degraded and untouchable. Yeah. Um, and we're maintaining these kind of inner sanctums that feel safe. And we're afraid of losing respectability if we're associated with the other stuff, yeah, the stuff that doesn't fit within that precinct. It is that. It's the association mm. that makes us feel uncomfortable. But that's really interesting about the book thing because I had it recently where I follow I follow someone on Twitter because I do follow a range of people. I follow people on there who mm, I really mm. disagree with, but I, I like to know what they're up to because otherwise it's worrying. <laughs> You've got to keep an yeah, eye on them. <laughs> they'll come up behind you. But someone had tweeted me just being like, I'm really, really disappointed that you follow this person um, blah 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 god. and I was like oh god we're really missing the point here because that's why I follow them mm. yeah it seems strange to kind of call people out for that oh can can we just <laughs> as a as a side alley talk about the phrase I'm really disappointed in you because that is coming up more and more in my feed and it's kind of like hang on the thing you're disappointed in is this idea you constructed of me in the first place which was nothing to do with me it was everything to do with you oh my god and yeah. i've fallen short of your construction and now you're disappointed in me and you've come online to tell me <laughs> definitely not a me problem you know like i i really feel very clearly that it is not a me problem if you're disappointed in me <laughs> yeah that's a funny one isn't it cuz yeah it feels like you're mm. being policed or at least someone wagging their finger at you like a teacher um yeah yeah, the thing the one that makes me laugh actually is with amazon reviews when someone comes on and reviews a book and they say i really wanted to like this but it was not (laughs) what i expected and i'm like but you then expected you you then had a construct in your head of what you thought it would be and i've let you down but i have i've only i'm only giving you the book that exists not a you problem (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I I think review culture is really difficult altogether, honestly, because as a reader, you have to basically accept that you will like some of the books you read more than others. Like, that's just the experience of reading. And the idea that I would, I don't know, the idea that I'd read someone's book and like, just not really care about it either way, but I know other people liked it. And then go on to Amazon and say, well, I've heard loads of people like raving about this book. And actually, I thought it was really poor. It's like, oh, get over yourself. You just didn't enjoy it. Why try and destroy something for someone else just because you had an average experience, <laughs> honestly? Yeah. I mean, it's. Mm. I wonder if, I hope I wouldn't do that anyway. But I know now, <laughs> having written, for example, a novel, I think... Even writing a terrible novel is so hard. So, yeah, so I would never, I, my, you know, I'll never ever now, it, you know, maybe privately I'll be like, oh, I didn't enjoy that, but I'll never tear apart any anything that has taken someone years and years of their life. I just, mm-hmm. I just love creativity and I love it when people give things a go. And I, so I think I just could never be a critic. I could never. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't either. Actually, I have to say, like, I think that's one of the, like, one of my weaknesses in a way is that I just can't bear the idea of tearing someone apart unless they've said something deliberately offensive which you know fine but I've even had you know being autistic like people send me books about autism and quite often they're really offensive and I always write to the editor about the offensiveness rather than wait and put a stinking review online because I actually think that most of the time the person hasn't meant to offend me because otherwise they certainly wouldn't have sent it to me and that actually I've got a chance to inform them before they go out with it 
whether they listen to me is a whole other question. But I feel like that's the good faith thing for me to do rather than to hold back and then try and cause that person, you know, a, a sort of nightmarish couple of weeks of of mm. abuse, honestly. Yeah, that that's um that's really, really nice of you. But I, I also feel like constructive <laughs> criticism in general is great, isn't it? Because any time that yeah, someone points yeah. something out to me, I'm like, it's actually gener- a generous act for you to do that, to say, I'm actually giving you a heads up here because, mm. yeah, someone needs to point this out. So that's that's really good. Yeah. So what can we do about it? You've actually got some really useful suggestions about how we can change the course of this kind of disconnected world that we're living in. And they're they're not simple, are they? There's no quick fixes for this. And they do involve us looking at our own behaviour rather than expecting other people to change. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. that's so hard, honestly. <laughs> I know. I know. I wanted to make the tips really simple and they are simple. They're really back to basics. But I needed the reminder, so I I assumed other people would like them too. (laughs) But really, it is kind of that digging deep and changing things for yourself and, you know, turning that passive scrolling that you do when you're waiting for the microwave to ding or whatever, turning that into a noticeable moment of like, oh, I'm doing that thing again where I'm just picking up my phone and scrolling for no reason or, or, oh, my eyes have glazed over again or, oh, I'm really tetchy and, I don't know, I'm like itching myself or I'm feeling really anxious and on edge because I'm I've been on my phone too much today I think a lot of it really is about getting back into your physical body and that's changed everything for me I just notice now you know when I hold my breath for too long I I can feel like a panic attack coming on I used to when I was um looking at something horrifying on my phone for too long like these things really impact us physically so that was a huge one, which sounds basic, like checking in with your body sounds basic, but I don't know if a lot of us do. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it does and it doesn't because actually we spend a lot of time out of body when we're online and we don't realise how long we're we're spending just completely not feeling that feedback. And, you know, we've all had the experience of suddenly realising our back hurts because we've been online for so long and we've we've stayed in one fixed position and I, it doesn't surprise me at all, honestly. I, I don't think it is basic to us anymore. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I did a talk about the book the other day and um, I was reeling off some tips. And then it made me think about this tweet that I saw a while ago that was like, basically human beings are leaves. They just need water and sunlight and, um, you know, the right <laughs> conditions. It was something about how we're just so, it's so basic what we need. Like have yeah. some water, go for a walk, call a friend. And I feel like Mm. I would be really annoyed if someone sat on a stage and told me that. (laughs) Um, But I felt like as a digital native who has written about the internet for years and years and years, I'm kind of coming back around to this idea of like, oh, all of those tips that I've been told many times by people, I'm kind of starting to understand. We've got to relearn. No, honestly, as somebody who spends a lot of time saying to audiences, like, it's really important to rest when you're tired. You would not believe how many people get very angry at me for saying that. And so, yeah, I think um, I think maybe that message does need to be yeah. repeated because I, I do think there are parts of human life where we've convinced ourselves that we've superseded the need for rest, hydration, contact with other human beings, you know, like all of the basics that your mum would have told you to do. And your conversation around rest, oh my God, I feel like it's one of the most important things 
ever right now and probably always has been but mm. i don't know one person who knows how to rest you know people might like no. you say kind of laugh that off like oh yeah or an obvious thing to rest but it's like how many people actually rest I, I don't think i know one person no and also like we're so used to commercialized pictures of rest which are you know about having the right product in the most beautiful bathtub with the scented candle that probably cost 100 quid you know and, and that's always a woman who's resting and her face is blissful. And that is just not what rest is. Like that's got, that might be a tiny component of your rest if you can afford it, but it's actually not representing the stuff that we really need to do in the least. And it it sort of drives me a little bit crazy, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, that's maybe a different conversation. <laughs> so you say this, I think, this lovely thing, which is it's not about agreeing, but understanding. And I think that's such a useful distinction to make. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Yes. Um, it sort of comes from that quote that we're all equal, but we're not the same. Like we're mm. not all the same. And I think this idea that everyone must think the way I think is really damaging because we didn't grow mm. up with the same environment or the same teachers or the same anything and our experience of the world could be entirely different and I think when it comes to actually just understanding I, I mean you know it sounds like a really big ask and it's scary to say these things in a time of massive kind of unrest in the world yeah. um, but just like extending that empathy just a tiny bit every day could change everything mm. um, I remember years ago reading something about this i think it was a david foster wallace book but i can't remember but it was about how it basically showed a story of like someone coughing um in the supermarket and then someone cutting in line and then someone else kind of trying to take over in a car in front of you and then it showed the people behind that and it was like the guy right. that was coughing like had cancer the guy that jumped in the queue was late for a hospital appointment and then the other one who was driving like his daughter had just been something had happened so i don't know that's mm -hmm. probably a really bad example but i just try and do that as much as i can on the internet i really do because i just think so yeah. many people are struggling at the moment so if we can understand a little bit more why someone is being the way they are then maybe we can communicate better yeah and I, like one of the things that i've taught myself to say to myself when i'm affronted by someone's behavior online is this person is not okay you know and often it's really self-evident you know someone has come to you and they're agitated or they're excessively offended by a throwaway remark, or they've totally misinterpreted what you've said, or they're behaving in like a really heightened way. And they're not okay. Yeah. You know, and there have been points in my life when I haven't been okay either. And I haven't always managed to not go onto the internet on those days, <laughs> to be quite frank. Yeah. Um, and I and to judge somebody on their worst day when they happen to have landed online out of sheer agitation, you know, I still think it's fine to block those people if they're being rude to you, but I shouldn't let it get to me because they're just, they're not feeling all right. Yeah, it's true. And when you look at your own behaviour, when I'm in a good place, I just don't want to have a go at anyone. <laughs> and I th and no, like you say, no, when you're in right, a yeah. not a good place, um, it's like that Snickers advert with like, you're not you when you're hungry and you turn into this, Mm. agitated monster who everything annoys you and 
I get it. We've all felt like that. But I think it's, unfortunately, no one's taught how to use the internet. It's like we're taught how to ride a bike and we're taught how to do other things, but we're not taught how mm. to be a person on the internet. And I think it would really help and a lot of us. We're not taught how to be a person, let alone <laughs> on the internet. Like, I think we could go go a step backwards <laughs> on that too. <laughs> it's true. But, um, but that, I guess that's sort of why I've tried to write this little book with some tips in there, because if it can help anyone just pause you know, there's something in there actually about pausing. If you get an email from your boss or you get a WhatsApp from your friend and it has driven you up the wall, like I just, I dare you to not reply for an hour or two or even a day because mm. we're just not in our right mind sometimes when we see something that riles us up. So yeah, we just need a bit of a time out. <laughs> I've so often found that with emails that have really rubbed me up the wrong way and I leave them for a day and I come back and I had not interpreted them properly. You know, like I'd I'd had a heightened response to often something that was really innocuous, but I was tired or I was already frustrated or I was in a rush or my insecurity had interpreted the email before my sensible brain had. <laughs> yeah. The last thing I really want to ask you is how really you think we can start to not just stop getting things wrong, but begin to build positive communities and become really useful digital citizens again? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it really is about taking a moment and stripping everything back and almost don't be afraid to start again. Because most of us have been on the internet now for a long time and we've accumulated, we've gone through like putting things in our rucksack and walking along with all this stuff weighing us down. And uh, you know, we're not the same people we were. And I don't know about you, but I'm not the same person I was, you know, pre-pandemic, for example. There's so much growth and no, no, stuff quite, that's happened. Yeah. So I really would urge people to take a look at what they're doing. Take, you know, don't shame yourself with your screen time or anything. You know, we're all human, but it's about what are you looking at and what is making you feel good? What's not making you feel good? What What's some of your favourite things to look at? Um, how do you like to stay informed? Would you like to maybe have a subscription to a, one newspaper that you feel is well-rounded rather than getting everything from Twitter, for example? Or are there people you actually do want to unfollow or you want to mute? Because it's okay to step away. And I know that for a lot of us, Instagram is almost like a who's who of following who and who, you know, it's mm. like a sign and a signal to who your community is. But, you know, if things have changed, then it's okay to step back. And it sounds really obvious, but what we see is basically what our life it's is. It's not because people feel terrible about unfollowing, I know, honestly. I know. Like I, I think that's one of the biggest issues for people that they feel absolutely dreadful about unfollowing, even when that person is having a really deleterious effect on their mental health. Like honestly, I know. We can just step you away. You can hide and you can mm. mute if you really feel like it could cause problems if you unfollow. But, you know, the minute you mute, they kind of disappear. And I know that sounds really mean, but if they're not like a yeah. really close person to you, obviously, they kind of just fade away. Because I think what we follow is everything to us because it's so ingrained in our daily habits. But the minute you're not following it anymore, you can really notice a change. So yeah, I really, I mean, look, 
I recently unfollowed 4,000 people on Twitter. So I really went completely... <laughs> wow, uh, that was quite the afternoon. <laughs> I mean, I literally downloaded this extension on Google Chrome that did it for me while I was in the shower. And I got out of the shower and I was a new woman, basically. Um, it was amazing. And also no one got offended because I kind of unfollowed everyone. But now I'm slowly building back what I want to follow. And to be honest, I really feel like we kind of need to get over the whole taking it personally thing. And I know that's easier said than done. But there are plenty of people I've unfollowed recently who I love I I really would like really do and I probably will see them in real life and it's really not that I don't want to see what they're up to it's just that right now I'm trying to have less in my feed and it's no reflection on the people themselves and I feel like that's a a conversation we need to have because maybe people are thinking "Mm, that sounds pretty impossible for me. So it's all really about taking it back into real life you know not spending time with people that you wouldn't spend time with in real life noticing what things you're trying to escape in real life when you bounce online rather than blaming online kind of sucking you in you know giving yourself something of better quality of more permanent quality to read instead of sucking in like hours and hours of like iffy material that and we know it's iffy it's all about making it real again I think it is and also I know it's annoying because it kind of falls onto us but I think we're at a point now where we can't rely on the apps to help us necessarily because they've got their own agenda they're you know on a money-making scheme and all that and Mm. and trialing new things that are very annoying like on instagram where you just see reels of people you really don't ever really want to see ever again um (laughs) so so you can't really depend on them i guess is what i'm saying so take it take the control back and see what you can do your end and for example even with like how i consume articles i have the pocket app which i know a lot of people use where I just save mm. in the little pocket app um, articles I want to read. I don't read them at the time. I, I, I save them for the end of the week. And then on Friday afternoons, I go through my little app and and read all the articles I've saved. And so that's just a really small example of I don't yeah. feel like the beck and call of the app trying to get my time in the moment. I'm like, no, no, I'll read you later. Mm. Emma, thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you about this. And I, I could actually, there's so much more detail I'd love to unravel in your book, but I really feel like people should buy it and read it instead. I think that's the that's the just thing to do because as you say, none of it is rocket science. It's actually simple advice that we need to hear for living just a more sensible and balanced life. And that is the best kind of life we can we can live really. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Hi again. It's raining ever harder here in the woods. (laughs) I think saying that made it get even harder. (laughs) I mean, if you're committed to walking in the winter, you really do have to get used to the rain and to begin to love it. I mean... I have to say, I find it truly joyful to be out in this kind of weather that I'm not supposed to be out in almost. It's it's an act of rebellion, an act of defiance. And the woods are so different when it's raining. Like every different 
kind of weather gives you a different experience. I've just found a beautiful birch polypore, a lovely young one. They're like marshmallows when they're young. And so it always kind of, I don't know, just makes me giggle wildly. It's muddy here for the first time in the year. I'm going to have to buy new Wellington boots because um, I bought some weird ones last year. <laughs> Accidentally bought ones with steel toe caps that are so heavy that my legs are in agony by the end of a short walk. <laughs> so I need to think about that. But I'm here and I'm seeing these beautiful old trees turn dark in the, in the wet. And all the bracken is deep bronze now. The woods are so colourful in the winter and I often get lost when I walk at this time of year because when the leaves fall off the trees the pathways become less obvious and it feels like the whole place has rearranged itself like the labyrinth in that David Bowie film. And so it's like being in this rearranging landscape that offers you a new experience every time you come back to it. It's never familiar in the way that you think it should be. That's surely got to be a gift. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Emma. And I hope that rather than giving up on everything, it encourages you just to reflect and to think about what your priorities are, to think about the ways that you recharge and to be kind to yourself to think about this place that you come to rest this instinct and urge in you to take a break that leads you into these online places that often frustrate you there's nothing wrong with that instinct and there's nothing wrong with the instinct towards justice either. It's just about us creating a world that feels more manageable, less overwhelming, more balanced. And this is a huge part of my balancing. I have to remind myself to do it. There's always so much that seems pressing inside the house and inside my computer. And it takes a weird kind of discipline to go out and seek pleasure outdoors. It always feels guilty, a little, to be getting outside into this incredible place. But here I am today. I hope you'll get out soon too. See you soon. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for being here to explore how we live now. To share your comments, questions or answers, go to howwelivenow.info and write a message or record a voicemail. We'll be compiling the best ones into an end of season special. How We Live Now is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. For updates, show notes and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com. And finally, please consider pre-ordering my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.